have been here uh, a month or two back where we did worship a little bit differently on a Sunday morning, and, and this is one of those days where we, um, we take a little bit part of the message and we put it, we front load the service with it just so that it might travel with us a little bit. So um, if, you're, if you're new here, your first time visitor, it, uh, you don't normally get a little bit of a sermon, two songs in, but um, every now and then it's, it's, it's probably right for us just to remind ourselves that the liturgy is, uh, is not in control. And just to set our minds into the Word and, and just travel through worship uh, with an idea already in place. So that's what I wanted to do this morning. I wanted to start um, with a thought and allow that thought to travel. Okay, well, we have been in a series for some time now on the Christian life in the midst of the digital age. And it was set off... Uh, we were sort of set off in the beginning with a statement that the message or the medium is the message. That was the sort of opening thought. The medium is the message, which was coined by a gentleman named Marshall McLuhan in the 60s. And his point is that any technology that uh, comes into common use in a culture particularly one that, that helps convey a certain sort of message, like a radio, that the medium itself ends up becoming, uh, that technology becomes a medium, and that, that medium becomes the ma- a dominant force in reshaping culture. So the light bulb reshaped culture. The printing press reshaped culture. The car reshaped and we're in the midst of another one of those reshapings in this digital age. So I want to put out, just in this, this is a summary for a lot of us, but it's a good way to start thinking. These are just some of the distinctives of the digital age. Some of the ways that we are growing up in the midst of culture change and, and what's ambiently uh, taking place. In the digital age, increasingly we are becoming um, more isolated as individuals. We can do more things by ourselves now than we ever have been able to before. That's one. Another one is we are becoming increasingly visual. We are entering into an increasingly entertainment-oriented culture where we're continually shown images to keep our attention. We... Uh, inside of that idea, we watch more and more and we read less and less. Have you noticed that? I notice even now when I'm looking online at a news article, if there is a YouTube embedded in the news article, like of a press conference, I'm more likely just to hit that, just to hear it and see it. Another idea, we increasingly... Uh, customize our experiences. We've grown very used to customizing our experiences. So uh, fantasy football is a great example. Right? We're, we're not content with the team as given us. We want our own team. And again, these things, by the way, any one of them, fine, not bad. What I want us to see is the large culture movement. So Fantasy football is just one example, but buying songs and not albums, that's 
Like, we, well, we like that song and that song and that song, but we don't buy the album. That's standard. Pandora, creating a radio station customized to you or Spotify or whatever it is. Even live stream um, sort of can allow you to experience church in whatever environment you choose. Increasingly, we've become accustomed to immediacy. It wasn't that many years ago that if you told me I could buy something online and have it at my door two days later for free, I would have said you were crazy. I would say that's not possible. How can I buy a book and it be at my house in 48 hours and someone else paid to do it? We're very used to immediacy. Immediate delivery, immediate updates on our phone. My point is, what's unique about the digital age is not the app you're using or the channel you're on or the site you're visiting or the podcast you listen to or your internet habits in general. The medium is shaping us. And that's, awakening to that has been a major theme for this, this sermon series. So mostly this is, this is review. What I did want to do this morning, though, just in setting us out, is taking that question, the idea of the medium being the message, and turning it, making it into a question, and pointing it back at us, the church, and saying, how is it true about us? If the medium is the message, what about the church? Because we are God's medium. We are what he's working through. You know, the world doesn't find out about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ simply by God speaking from heaven and everybody hearing it. That's not, he doesn't do it that way. He doesn't send his Holy Spirit to roam the earth, and when everybody goes to bed, they have a certain dream. Sometimes these things happen, but by and large, overwhelmingly, the church is the medium through which the message of God is given. So to what degree is the medium the message? To what degree is the church, the gathering of believers, is the church the message? To what degree are we shaping the message that's coming through us? The New Testament, the, the idea, though it's canned kind of in a fresh way, the idea is not new. The New Testament's rife with references to this. This is Acts 1.8. This is Jesus speaking. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You are going to do it. So Jesus says, you're going to be the medium through which to which the whole earth hears about me. You're the medium through which the power of God is going to be seen. You're the medium through which the Holy Spirit is going to be experienced. First Peter, or Peter in First Peter, urges his fellowship in this idea. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You hear what he's saying? 
He's saying to the medium, to the church, be so careful with how you live your lives, meticulously careful with how you live your lives, because a life lived well, even among the enemies of God, will cause them problems. It will confound, even though they call you evil, they will glorify the Lord. In other words, you, the medium, even though they reject the message, a God-consistent medium will turn them, will draw them back. Jesus says it this way, the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do they give glory to the Father in heaven? By seeing the noble works of the faithful. We're the salt. and We're the light. Paul says it in a little bit of a negative way. He kind of deals with the opposite. The opposite consequence of when a when a people of God live righteously, their righteous living conveys the message. He says, but what happens when a people of God do not live righteously? And he, in, in this moment, it's kind of a Jewish conversation, but the principle is still here. He says this in Romans. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, so he's saying, if you know everything you're supposed to do, that's what he's saying. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, he says, so you know everything and you know that you're charged to be everything. Okay? He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Why you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What Paul's saying is, a poor medium makes the message unbelievable. He's saying in this case, here... Here is a group of people who presumably have the perfect message but are living it out poorly. And he's saying the net result of that is not that they're saved despite you, but that they blaspheme God because of you. In other words, the medium is the message. The truth of God is conveyed through our plausible, righteous lives. If, if, you, if you claim that Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ is a life-giving message, and if that life-giving message gives you hope, shouldn't somebody see it 
in you. They have the right to squint. And they should see a God-consistent life. Because the message is being carried through the medium, and if the medium is not believable, the message will be missed. The reason I say that is because in a culture where, you know, we've gone from facing one another to facing TV screens collectively, and we've gone from facing the TV screen to everybody facing their own screen, um, we are living in the midst of this, and we're called to help people face the cross, turn back to Christ, redirect their attention. And we do that primarily through convicted and conscious Christian lives by living a life out, not that it has everything worked out, but that it's honest and that it's sorting through the very issues that we're talking about here. I had an experience uh, the other day, a few weeks back, where just from some of the thoughts I've had through this series about how to better use my phone. I was, I, was, I was actually in my capacity as an Air National Guardsman, and I was among people, none of whom confessed Jesus, and I simply shared with them what I was working through. It's like I said I'm mindful that how often I pull my phone out in the presence of other people. I'm I'm trying to be more thoughtful of the room and the setting I'm in. I didn't say the word Jesus. I didn't kneel to pray, and I didn't count decisions. But you, I was struck by how life-giving that moment was in that circle. I was surprised at how much some of them needed to hear that. The mere fact that you we are collectively waking up to this subject is helping others. And my ask for you would be, don't wait till you have it all sorted out. Don't wait till you've figured... When we do that, we just forget everything we intended to think about. Begin now. Begin now. And this is how I would set us off this morning. Begin now to begin to build. Reconstruct. Begin to start asking the Lord, Lord, how would you... Uh, begin to alter certain areas of my life. Lord, I give you permission to speak in and, and say, maybe I should do that a little more or that a little less. What we don't want to be is the people who don't do things, right? We're not trying to replace a digital culture with a culture that doesn't do anything. Righteous inactivity is not the nature of the church. Making life-giving choices is. We want to come and live among people where we're making better choices. We're doing wiser things with our phones or with our setting or online or how we, we shield ourselves less. We exercise openness and honesty and confession rather than hiding behind a, a profile. We, we honor those who are in the room with us in our own houses rather than kind of scattering to the four corners in our own devices. We value the fellowship that God has given us. These are the sorts of choices we're making. And these, these are life-giving where the world will look and though they call us evildoers, when we do these things well, they'll marvel and they'll give thanks to the Lord on his day of visitation.
Let me pray. Lord, as we worship you this morning, through song and through prayer and through your word, we do invite you to your Holy Spirit to begin to build in each person's life here. We're all different. But we are the medium of your message, Lord. And so while our focus for these weeks is on the digital age and, and all of these sorts of things like internet and phones, show us, Lord, Show us a better way to use them. Not just for ourselves, not just for our family, not just for our friends, but even for our enemies, Lord. That all would see a better way. That they would be curiously drawn to your message through a righteous medium. Lord, we do pray for that. That we would be righteous. May this morning even just be a time of confession. Lord, help us to live righteously. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it all. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in, in the Bible. It's arranged in stanzas that roughly correspond to the Hebrew alphabet. So there's a stanza for each letter. And uh, we'll, we'll come to this in a bit. The theme that I would like to address um, in thinking about the age we're in is the idea of accessibility. We live in in an age of accessibility. It's right there. Whatever we want to do, right? There's an app for it. We can just, in moments, we can be, we can be where we can know the score of the game. We can know the weather tomorrow. We're just, it's immediately accessible. I'll give you a a prime example of some of the cost of this because the cost of accessibility is, is we no longer need to know it we can find it. Why do I need to learn it if I can find it? Right? That's the, what the student will say. Why do I need to learn this if I can Google it? Right? An example of this, I, I will let you know about myself. I, I am a map person. I like maps. I, in fact, I love maps. I grew up reading maps uh, in my whole career flying in our airplane, I, I flew the airplane before it had a GPS in it. We would fly through the desert with a map in one hand, looking out the window with the other. Just we, I would have a stack of maps uh, in whatever country we happened to be in of highly detailed terrain. And there's really very few things that are as pleasurable as pulling a map out. That's a great feeling. You open it up. I wrap Christmas presents in maps. I do. It's the best way to show somebody I love them is to give it to them in a map. 
I say all that because uh, a couple years ago, my wife said to me, she says, hey, can you go pick up so-and-so? He's at so-and-so's house. I said, sure. And running out the door, she gives me the address, and I bingy-de-bonk it into my machine, right, my little pocket iPhone. And I hop in the car, and off I go with 1% battery. And so I'm... A, I'm on my way to, I have a general sense of where I need to go. I need to go to the town of Avondale. This person is in a building in Avondale. And I'm, I'm in the car and I'm somewhere in Avondale and I, I, my phone dies. So now I'm like, I have no idea where I'm going. And of course, my first instinct is to call my wife. So you're like, because it's all the same thing, right? My phone's dead, my map's dead, everything's dead. And I have one of my sons in the car just to watch the whole shameless act take place. I couldn't recharge the phone for some reason. It wasn't working out. I think it was because I had pocket lint in the little recharging thing, but it was a total disaster. I ended up at Kennett Middle School, which, by the way, isn't in Avondale, walking around the basketball court asking parents, hey, do you know where the street is? Do you know where the street is? I mean, entirely embarrassing. The truth of the matter is, I had access to the information, but I did not have the information. Right? There's a huge difference between knowing where to go to get it and having it. Having it, having it. To saying... Um, I know how to conjure the answer up is an entirely different science than knowing the answer. I suppose if I had a map, I could have referenced the map, but I didn't. That's the subject of accessibility that I want to talk about, and it's distinctive. It's, it's not distinctive as though it's never existed. It's always existed. In fact, we'll talk about that in a bit. It's always existed, and it's been on the rise, but the digital age brings it to a whole new level. Why do you need to know it? You can access it. It shows up in a lot of ways in our culture, and what I find is I think I'm, I'm straddling two, two sorts of people. So I think people younger than me embrace some of this wholeheartedly without even thinking about it. And I think people older than me say it's of the devil. And I'm in the middle. I'm like, it doesn't quite feel right, but I'm doing it. A good example is, this is a concept of accessibility. My information is now in the cloud. Right? Cloud storage is a phenomenon of people who are into access. I don't have the information with me. It's not actually here. It's there. I think people who are younger think, Score, I get more memory. It's a no-brainer. I think people older think I have my credit card in the cloud. I'm not doing that. I'm going to write a check. If God wanted us to use credit cards in the cloud, he'd have given us a cloud, right? Okay, a pillar, right. But that's just an example of sort of access. Even the fact that that concept sells is because we're now accustomed to not having it, but reaching and grabbing it. Not owning a DVD, like buying a DVD, but it never coming to my house. Like me owning it electronically. 
is strange for me. It's just weird that I can access something on demand. It's not actually here. It's not mine. I don't possess it, but I can get it. We're, we're in the, our culture's in the crossover of that, where this is now commonplace. In fact, it's now in the place of going, why would you ever buy a DVD? I've said this before, but not buying a song, just, you know, spotifying it to my heart's content, that feels strange to me, feels like, is that even legal? Somebody spent a lot of money to make that song, and I can just listen to it all day long? I can access it whenever I want, wherever I want, however I want. These are things are in the change. Now in school, I think it's actually an educational, real educational challenge to sort of split the hair on what do, how do you justify with students what they really need to learn versus simply educating them in the art of interface. We're now educating children to know how to get Isn't some of what they get, shouldn't they own it for themselves? This is the culture of access in which we live. And we should, not, we should assume that if it's true out there, it's true in here, right? If it's true of our commonplace practices, it's true of our most religious practices. Why do we assume there's this discontinuity between our non-religious activities and our religious activities. There's massive bleed over. So if we have become an access-oriented culture there, we should assume we're an access-oriented culture when we study the Word. And these are the ways that I see it. So I'll just share with you things that I see, I think I observe, and they're not new. So they didn't happen last week or last year. In fact, they've been going on for some time. But Oh, every day we're getting more access-oriented. The first thing I see is that Bible study or referencing the Scriptures appears more and more to be an exercise of extraction. Meaning, I have a question, it's in the Bible, and I want to pull the answer out of the Bible. I'm not really that concerned with the story that came before it or the story that came after it or the broad umbrella teaching of it. I really just want, I'm extracting the answer I want to get from it, which is a classic access sort of behavior pattern. I'm referencing it for answers. Uh, There was a theological issue that uh, came... uh, I got involved in some time ago. Someone said to me, yeah, yeah, I know the big four verses that talk about this issue. Too much. I tripped over myself. Like, what? You think there's four? I would like average like 400 or maybe 4,000 on this subject. Big subject. Who is God type subject. I know the big four. And I thought, that is... That notion, and it's, it, you see that on all sorts of sexuality, uh, all of the hot topics, right? If you go online, you'll get the four verses or the three verses. They will extract for you, here's the argument. As though the Bible was trying to ever make that argument. 
The Bible is a long narrative litany of stories, and it's teaching all sorts of things all the time. And when we extract an answer, we assume that was what that story was actually trying to say. Is it possible that story had a lot of other things it wanted to say? That's the first thing, is sort of the nature of extraction. We go to the Bible on demand. I love my Bible app. I love it. I use it all the time. I remember, oh, what's the verse? And I just type in a little bit of the verse, and boom, it pulls the verse for me. There's another side to that, which is I lose context with the word. Here's another thought. Accessibility means it's people sort of live in the present. So if I don't need to know it, and if I know I can always access it, then I grab things that I perceive I need right now. So if there's a a spiritual issue that comes up, I go search it out. I Google it. I, I conjure it out of the ether, and it comes to me, and there it is. And it matters for me today. Are we a Christian culture that's learning for tomorrow? If we're always caught in today, well, if we're always answering the crisis today, then there's a tomorrow coming. And a lot of the things, a lot of the truth about the Word builds slowly. Kind of over many, many iterations. Do you remember once how many phone numbers you knew? Remember that? I once knew my own phone number. Now, right, because it's so easily accessible, it's gone. You might even be able to say, remember how many stories of the Bible you once knew? I mean, culturally, we could be accessing ourselves out of the word. A third idea is easy access relegates our engagement only when it's convenient, to convenient times. When something's easy to get to, it's convenient. And the beauty of that is it really is convenient. At any hour of the day, I'm in. I can be in the Bible. I can, I can, I'm right there. It's always with me. It's always with me. And I love that. Another side of convenience, however, is you ever notice the things that are so convenient you never do them? Like, I really... It's so convenient, I'll get to it later, or I'll get to it later, I'll get to it later. I joked in the first service, like, you need to be consistent here. Growing up, you know how you're like, oh, I can go to Philly. Philly's right down the street. I'll go see the Liberty Bell, and 10 years go by, and you've never seen the Liberty Bell. Why? Because it's so conveniently close. We need to put the Liberty Bell in Milwaukee, and then you'll go see it. When I was growing up, my mom said, on a rainy weekend, we'll go to D.C. Anytime it rains, we'll go to D.C., because I love Washington, D.C., it's raining today. We could go. We didn't go to D.C. It, it, it was seen as convenient. So there's a way that having it so close to your person might give you the feeling that you're being more faithful than you are. How much time have you really devoted to the Word? If you're conveniently in, you can conveniently right out again. How much, 
real time. And here's one last thought. An access culture tends to put the user over the medium. It puts us in a position of superiority, right? Like a a scientist accessing a manual for an answer. It's a notion that when I come to the Word with a question and I look for the answer, the the book, the manual is supposed to give me the answer. Have you ever thought that maybe the Bible wants to ask a question? Like, the truth of them is, we're beneath the Word of God. We're not sort of agents, autonomous agents that are extracting answers out to make our lives fit. We, are we just saying that this is the air I breathe? Your holy word. It's my daily bread. It's how I live. I mean, that is a very different disposition than Here's the manual from which I get my answers. And this, let's listen to Psalm 119 about this. I just want you to hear it. Okay, and again, there's 22 different sections in this chapter. You could read, you could read from almost anyone. In fact, I, I, I free you right now to, to read from wherever you choose in this psalm. What I want you to grab on is to the way the writer, the author, how deeply enmeshed in the word of God, he is. How much it's a part of his life. A daily life. I mean, you could read, I'm trying to be random. Because it could be any one of them. Verse 9. Beth. This is the stanza. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your youth, of your mouth. In the ways of your testimonies I delight. As much as in all riches... I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now, this, is, this stanza is not unique from the other stanzas. This stanza doesn't stand out from the next one or the next one or the next one. 22 times in this psalm, the writer is saying how he delights in the word of God and how he meditates on it in his heart. And how, once when I read in the last service, he says, I awake at midnight to your rules and your statutes. How must it be living in you to awake at midnight with it? If you're accustomed to thinking, well, I can access it anytime I want, are you going to awake at midnight with the word in your heart? No, it's on your bedstand. Now, you could say, well, you know, that really is not unique to the iPhone. I mean, that's true of the book itself. I think you're right. I don't think this is new to the iPhone. I I think the digital age brings it to a whole new level. But I do think that we have become an access culture almost since the day that this was in everybody's hand. We have grown accustomed to me possessing it means I know it. 
and we don't. I had a really interesting experience a few weeks back. I'm teaching a course during my lunch hour on a few days a week at Wilmington Christian, just a little elective on the book of Genesis. So I'm with these students. I'm having a ball. It's, uh, it's, it's easy fun for me. And we're working through the book of Genesis, and I have one of the students. He's supposed to give a report. He's supposed to respond to two verses in Genesis, Genesis 126 and 127. This is Genesis 127. You should be able to see it on the screen here. Right about now. It's available. Okay, it is available. Let's access it. <laughs> there it is. So there it is. Now, in the class, he says, may I read it? Before he sort of gives his talk, I said, okay, because it's a short passage. And I'm off in the side of the room. And I don't have my Bible with me at the time. I think I had given it to a student. But this passage is in me. Okay? Because it's not an insignificant passage. Our Christian worldview is anchored in this passage. We are made in God's image. It's a big one, a really big one. So it's in my heart. And I'm sitting off on the side of the room, and the student begins to read, and this is how he says it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Did you hear it? He misread it. He misread it. Now, no problem with him misreading it. Like, I didn't kick him out of class. I didn't mark him down. What was interesting was, I'm sitting over in the corner of the room with no Bible in hand, and I knew it. Why? Because it was indelibly in me. Why did he misread it? Because it is not in him. When we read the word, it is a soft confession to the Lord. It is, it's a faithful act of saying, Lord, it's not in me yet. It's yanking words and pulling them in bit by bit. And we all know when we read, we Reading and comprehension are sort of time-sharing, the same brain cells. So we're half reading, we're half trying to comprehend. But I was sitting there, I was sitting there presumably with no Bible in hand, not reading, which in our culture is seen as an inferior posture. The astute posture of the responsible learner is to be reading because we have totally negated knowing. We've become an access culture. Psalm 119, does he read or does he know? He knows. He knows the word of God. It's with him when he, when he rises, when he walks. Let me read this last passage. This is out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a very famous section of the book where there's sort of a great statement among the Hebrews that we shall love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Okay, And then this is what... It goes on to be written, and these words that I command you today, it's speaking of the law of God, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, not your bedstand. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, they shall be as frontlets on your eyes. You write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, your knowledge of the word. Someone is coming in. It actually backs out from the closest thing to you, on your head, to your eyes, to your hands, to your door, to the gate. It's saying if someone's going to come into your town, they're going to know. They are going to know breaking the horizon 
that you are, you, God's word is in you. It's in you. Now, 90% of the people who were commanded to do this were illiterate. We need to embrace the fact that the very people in Deuteronomy that are commanded to know the word of God, to wake with it, walk with it, eat with it, dine with it, trade with it, shake with it, interact with it, all of that, 90, greater than 90% were illiterate. What is the assumption? The assumption is the stories of God have to be, must be in you if they are going to be, if they are going to do the work God intends them to do. You cannot stand away and access the word and fulfill God's command. I'm not saying we have to memorize it. In fact, Though it would be great if little pieces here and there uh, were committed to memory. I would say the goal would be to be at home in it. At home in it. So many times I see people who are getting ready to share a verse in a Bible study or a small group. They're getting ready to share a verse, but they don't know the chapter and verse exactly, or they don't know was it in which or in that. And they're like, ooh, I'm I'm not going to... There's a verse, but I think I'll get it right. I won't get it right, so I won't share it. Don't do that. Share it. Share your fragmented, 65% correct verse. Do it. Get in the habit of taking what's in and pushing it out. You know what I find? Every time that I do that, I almost every time, I go back to fix my problem. I find that. Because now I set it, I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound quite right. So then I do the work of sort of rehabilitating my knowledge versus I'm going to say it, but I don't think I have it right, so I won't say it. Don't sit in incorrect silence any longer. Share it. Be free from the chapter, verse, numerology. Try to act and be as though you're at home with the knowledge of God, which is God seems to say somewhere something like this. And then you will free your room up to begin to live with the word. Live with the stories. Very practically, I'll just try to close with some. When I am dealing with a story, I don't feel like I'm at home with it until I have in my mind what the room looked like, what people were saying and how they sounded until I can hear the tone in their voice. That's when I'm at home with it. When it's internally honest and full. And when it's a propositional thing like Romans or 1 Corinthians, when it's teachings, I don't really feel like I'm at home with it until I can follow the arc of the arguments. Where did I come from and where is it going and why? That helps me find a home. Because here's the deal. The medium is the message, which means it's the word in you coming out that gives life. Not the Bible in your hand or the app in your pocket. It's you plausibly responding to the good news of Jesus that transforms you and others. It's that that makes us live such good lives among the Gentiles that though they would call us evildoers, would see our good deeds and glorify the Lord on his day of his visitation. It's the sort of counterculture we need right now. Let's pray, Lord. Bless our efforts, our small efforts, small steps. Lord, 
I know it's not your will to overweigh somebody or burden them down with too much work that they can handle, Lord. So small steps. We pray your Holy Spirit would just guide us bit by bit into your righteousness so that this book would one day be our meal. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.